Welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, an online literary magazine featuring work that points to the kingdom of God. Today's episode is a little different to usual, as you may have noticed if you've seen the cover image of this forecast. Rather than being a recorded conversation with someone else, it's kind of an arranged conversation between various works centered on the theme of the strength of gentleness. I've been thinking about gentleness recently. Last month, I published an article in Plough magazine about meekness, which is synonymous with gentleness. Thus, the episode begins with me reading that article, followed by several works of writing and music, some of which have previously appeared on Foreshadow, all connected with this theme of the strength of gentleness. I hope you find these pieces useful in some way. If you have any thoughts on anything you hear that you'd like to share, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. I'll provide contact info at the end of this episode. So now, here's my article, a cultural commentary, which was published soon before Father's Day. It's called, Behold the Mandalorian, Meekness and Masculinity in Star Wars. Can masculinity be good? This is the question with which priest Noah Van Neel subtitles his recent article in Plough. I find an unexpected angle on this question in two father-son relationships in the Star Wars saga that illustrate meekness as a healthy model for manhood. Meekness is at the heart of The Mandalorian, the new live-action Star Wars television series, spoilers ahead. The story follows Din Djarin, a bounty hunter hired to capture a child with mysterious powers. However, upon encountering the child, whose real name is Grogu, although some viewers call him Baby Yoda, Jaren immediately bonds with him. When he realizes that his employers wish to harm Grogu, Jaren risks his security and life to protect the child. Eventually, he receives instructions from a mentor to deliver Grogu to safety among the Jedi. In the course of completing this task, Jaren reluctantly transforms into a single father. The show depicts the daily grind of Jaren providing for Grogu, entrusting him to others' care while earning their provisions, or establishing boundaries, such as when he stops Grogu from naughtily eating the eggs of alien creatures. Jaren isn't gentle with everyone he encounters, though. Belonging to a class of warriors among the Mandalorian people, he earns his living as a mercenary and often has no mercy on his enemies. Nonetheless, over time, fatherhood changes him. This is especially clear when Jaren, whose sect's customs forbid him from revealing his face to other people, removes his helmet in order to protect and connect with Grogu. The closer he comes to Grogu, the more tender and human he becomes. Jaren's gradual transformation stands out in a show more violent and gritty than other Star Wars content but it is consistent with the meekness displayed by Luke Skywalker, the saga's primary hero, whose decisive act toward his father 
witnesses an alternative to hatred and violence. In one of the final scenes of Return of the Jedi, Emperor Palpatine has arranged a duel between Luke and Darth Vader. Although Luke emerges as the more powerful warrior, in the end, he lays down his laser sword, refusing to kill his father. Here, the meekness is reversed from that in The Mandalorian. The son becomes meek toward the father. Luke's sacrifice is more extreme than Jaren's, because Luke loves not just one he has vowed to protect, but even, on one level, his enemy. Enraged, Palpatine begins electrocuting Luke with force lightning from his fingertips. In response, Vader himself lays down his life. Rather than retaining his position as Dark Lord, he protects his son by lifting Palpatine and throwing him into a pit. In the process, Vader is fatally wounded, but he has rescued Luke and defeated the leader of the oppressive Galactic Empire. Before Vader dies, he asks Luke to take his mask off so that he may look on his son, as he says, with my own eyes. Luke's meekness saves Vader by restoring their relationship and Vader's humanity. Much has been written about the central roles of myth and spirituality in the Star Wars universe. The meekness of Jaren and Luke have been compared to the humility exemplified by Jesus of Nazareth, whom Christians understand as the Son of God who empties himself of his heavenly power to become a human for the salvation of the world. Beyond his divine strength, as a human, Jesus is strong in word and deed. He works as a builder and challenges religious leaders who do not live according to their own laws. Such strength is bridled with gentle compassion. Overturning social conventions, Jesus restores dignity to people on the edges, such as women, children, the sick, and sinners. He touches the untouchable and welcomes outcasts. He teaches his followers to do the same and to love not only each other, but even their enemies, because all people are beloved of God. Everything Jesus does is in service to God the Father and others, even to the very end. Threatened by his teachings and their reception, religious leaders conspire to put him to death. Behold the man, Pontius Pilate says, presenting before the crowd the king of the Jews, crowned humiliatingly with thorns and wearing a purple robe. They respond, Crucify him, crucify him. But even this, Christians believe, is a part of Jesus' plan. He knows that only by voluntarily offering his life can he conquer sin and death, rising from the dead three days later and rescuing captives from hell along the way. Like Jaren, Jesus is a warrior, and like Luke's, his victory comes through self-sacrifice, except that rather than wearing impenetrable Beskar armor or wielding a lightsaber, Jesus conquers evil through the cross, which an ancient Christian hymn calls the weapon of peace. In his article, Seeking a Healthy Model of Masculinity, Van Neel also points to Jesus, God made man, encouraging men to emulate Jesus' manly virtues of compassion, humility, and purpose. Plough has subsequently published critical responses to Van Neel's article. 
The main questions do not concern Van Neel's defining and opposing toxic masculinity or encouraging men to be compassionate, humble, and purposeful, which the readers appear to agree with, but what it is that makes those virtues manly. What distinguishes Van Neel's view of positive masculinity from a positive femininity, writes one reader. What outlook and behaviors, if any, are specifically masculine, writes another. I wonder if Star Wars can help here. Jaren is clearly a manly character. His armor, combat skills, and dutifulness align with traditional understandings of masculinity, which are often associated with the archetypal roles of hunter and warrior. At the same time, when Jaren is with Grogu, he is gentle, using his strength and skill to serve the vulnerable child in his care. In other words, the fierce hunter-warrior becomes a loving father. His power combines with the aforementioned virtues of compassion, humility, and purpose. I believe that this strength expressed in gentle love, which I understand as meekness, displays a healthy model of masculinity. But again, what makes such meekness masculine? Indeed, women too can be strong, and they are, Thus, they can also express their strength in love. However, historically, most men have inherited status and privilege that women have not. And on average, men are understood to possess greater physical strength than women. Thus, men often have the unique choice between either abusing such power, resulting in toxic masculinity, or channeling it for the good of others, resulting in healthy masculinity. Like Jaren and Vader removing their helmets to see their children face to face, and like the Son of God humbling himself to save us, men practicing meekness relate to others not from a position of superiority or domination, but of equality and generosity. Because such meekness involves voluntarily laying aside the privilege and pride that can come with manhood, Cultivating the virtue may be more challenging for men than women. At the same time, contemporary Western society tends to prize strength while overlooking gentleness, regardless of gender. The call to meekness is not for men alone. When Jesus taught, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he was speaking to men and women, both of whom must use their strength in whatever form they have it, to conquer only evil and not other people, to bless and embolden others, not to diminish them. Rather than abolishing power, Jesus teaches how to wield it rightly, saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To cite the Mandalorian Creed, this is the way for all who seek the kingdom of God. Like Jaren, committing his life to help Grogu, 
and Luke refusing to fight his father. Jesus triumphs over evil and saves the world through meekness. Jesus is the ultimate hero from whom men can learn how to be men as God intends, using their power in loving service. This next clip comes from a previous forecast with composer Scott Stevens, in which he describes his work composing for the film Sometimes I Shake, about the life and death of jazz professor Dan Nelson. The clip is followed by Scott's composition Perspective, which appeared in Foreshadow this past January. So, you know, when you, when you suffer from from the the symptoms of, of Parkinson's, you know, you're shaking, shaking of your of your limbs, of your of your digits, of your, um, you know, your your head, your feet, your hands. Uh, that's a fairly fragile and vulnerable thing to experience. And you know, there's Dan used to make jokes about his Parkinson's, probably to put other people at ease who maybe hadn't been around someone who had Parkinson's disease. Um, and maybe felt uncomfortable by the shake. So he'd crack a joke and say, yeah, when, I, when I'm directing the concert band at Point Loma, you know, I, a lot of times there's a lot of vibrato because they're just trying to follow my direction. And he's saying this, you know, as his hands shaking. So there's, there's some inherent kind of dark, but inherent humor there to sort of put people at ease. But, you know, when I was thinking about the shakes in terms of music, um, I started thinking like, it, it, this needs to be a story that's very vulnerable and offers some really, really like thin and fragile sounds. And actually Jared at the very start said, Scott, I need you to, I need you to think like broken instruments, discarded instruments, which isn't to say I went and just like broke a piano or <laughs> lit a guitar on fire or anything, but trying, trying to feature very fragile sounds. And so um, there's, how do I explain this? There's, there's a, you know, playing a guitar, really loud, right? When you have a pick and you're just strumming three chords in the truth, you know, that can be, that can be really effective, but then there's, there's like finger picking, right? Where you're doing something more delicate. Um, you could even drop the pick and take a violin bow and start to bow the strings. And that's going to be, be an even thinner and more fragile sound. And so if you did something like that in say a concert hall, the people at the back aren't going to hear it, right? Cause it's such a quiet sound, but the cool thing about recording that kind of stuff is that you have a volume knob you can turn it up you can actually hear all this intimate detail and so you're taking this very quiet sort of inherently innately weak sound but when you can turn up a volume knob then suddenly it's there it's present and takes maybe more of a definitive shape it doesn't change the quality it still sounds vulnerable and frail but now it's it's more audible than it was and i think that Dan's life followed that arc in a very interesting way in that as his body became more frail, as it became, you know, more, more susceptible to all kinds of, all kinds of things. Um, even though some might look at that as sort of a decrescendo, sort of the twilight of his life on its way out, getting quieter, the intentionality with which he lived his life became so much more focused and the things that he accomplished, you know, helping establish 
um, an orphanage in Rwanda and trying to make some repara reparations, reconciliations with people, trying to be more soft-hearted than he'd been. To me, it felt very much more like a crescendo, like, wow, you know, even, even as your body's growing more and more weak, the, the force and faith and intentionality of your life is growing. And so it's, you know, that's the kind of thing where listening inwardly, you have to let those kinds of thoughts percolate. Otherwise, you know, I might just take off on a scene and not be thinking of the context of his life and the story. And, you know, I could write something that's really, it, it kind of doesn't relate. I might just go, okay, this needs to be sad and write something that's maybe a little more sad, but it's, as I just described, it's so much more nuanced than that. It's so much richer. The story was so much richer um, than that. And I feel like that kind of demands that you you bring you bring your most vulnerable <laughs> um, work to, to something like that. Next is a short memoir piece published in Foreshadow this past March, The Holy City, written and read by Sam Seligman. 
Years ago, I lived in New York City, where I'd sing in Greenwich Village folk clubs. Mondays were open mic nights when amateurs signed up. Summer evenings were the busiest, and tourists and visitors from the suburbs ventured into the Bohemian community to shop, eat, and check out the clubs. One Monday, I'd started a new job selling ice cream sandwiches on the streets, so I didn't think I'd be able to get to Folk City in time for their 7 p.m. signups. Two church members, Suzanne and Diane, volunteered to sign me up. When I returned to the village from work, they told me they'd drawn a good number. I'd be singing between 8.30 and 9 p.m. We've been praying for you all day, they added, and we asked the Lord to place angels beside each table where the audience would be sitting. Before leaving Suzanne and her husband's tiny flat on McDougal Street, we prayed, surrendering the evening to God. Entering Folk City, I could feel it buzzing with energy. The three of us walked past the bar and headed for the main room. There, we grabbed a table, sat down, and waited. Musicians took the stage, performed, and left. As it drew closer to my turn, I got ready. Then, unexpectedly, the MC introduced a special guest, who emerged from the audience to a loud applause. I'd never heard of the guy, but from the crowd's reaction, I figured he was a local favorite. After finishing his song, his first song, the songwriter shared a personal story. I just hitchhiked from San Francisco, he said. Most of the drivers had their radios turned onto a gospel station, and their songs were all about Jesus. I wish someone would write an anti-Jesus song, he half-jested, before stopping himself, but it was too late. The audience jumped on his suggestion, urging him to write one on the spot. The musician had committed himself, so we went ahead. Something must have taken over the guy. His impromptu lyrics were hitting on all cylinders. He spewed out his mockery, ending his first verse with, Stay on the cross, Jesus. We don't need you. The audience roared their approval. I was incensed. They think Christians walk around in white shoes drinking milk? I thought, I'll give them something different. My mind flipped through a song list, thinking of lyrics about judgment. Then, out of nowhere, I remembered something I'd heard days earlier at a neighborhood park. A church picnic was nearby, and the pastor had given a brief sermon. A question from the sermon spoke to me. In everything you do, he said, are you doing it to glorify the Lord or to glorify yourself? At that point, an internal conversation took place between the Creator and myself. You know I want to glorify you, I sighed. What do you want me to sing? One song resonated. It was about the holy city, described in the biblical book of Revelation. I'd learned it at a church in Colorado while hitchhiking. I'd sung it twice in three weeks at Folk City, so I thought I ought to sing something else. Yet I couldn't shake that song about the holy city. They don't want to hear it, I reasoned. Besides, it's a gentle tune. How could I follow him with that song? It's your choice, the voice replied, but she asked. Turning to Suzanne, I said, What do you think I ought to sing? How about that song from Revelation? She replied, Well, that settled it. Moments later, the musician finished his song and left the stage to a drunken applause. Then, without missing a beat, the MC introduced me. And now, here's someone from the other side, Sam.
talk about a setup. But I'd made my decision. So when I got behind the microphone, I sat on a stool, which I rarely did, preferring to stand, and I kept my guitar pick in my denim pockets, choosing instead to strum with my fingers. I began my set with a short tune I'd never shared before. Well, how are you today? Have you got some things on your mind? Have you lost your way? Is it hard to keep it inside? Well, you can't have your friends give you all their advice and they will tell you again what is wrong and what is right, but only you will know. And then again, you may not. I stopped, placed a guitar on my lap, and looked out toward the audience. I couldn't see their faces, but the club was full, and I sensed they were listening. I didn't have a speech plan, but the words flowed out. You know, I said, there's a lot of musicians here. We've been given a gift, and we can use our music to heal others or to hurt them. Also, many of us have the gift of words, and we can use our words to lead people to the truth, or, looking in the direction of the musician who'd left the room, lead them into ignorance. There's a book I read, and I'm sure you know which one. I'm not here to preach. I just want to share a few words from that book. And then I began singing that tune I'd learned in Colorado. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. ready as a bride prepared for her husband coming down out of heaven from God and I heard a great voice
While I was singing, I found myself looking down on a young man dressed in denim, wearing sandals, and playing a guitar. I was astonished. That was me. I felt physically detached, though I knew my mouth was opening and closing and the words were tumbling out. I don't know who wrote that song, but I'd added my own ending, also based on the promises in Revelation. When the song ended, the club erupted, and I thought, their souls are responding. This has nothing to do with me. And if there was any acknowledgement towards me, it was simply to say, thanks, we needed that. sharing some final words, here's some brief housekeeping. Looking forward, in two weeks for our next forecast, 
Will is interviewing his friend and mentor, whom he mentioned in our very first episode, so do stay tuned for that. We welcome any comments or feedback to contribute to this conversation of this episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about the pieces shared today, or anything else, do get in touch by emailing me at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. You can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted there every week. And be sure to subscribe to the free newsletter if you haven't already. If you know anyone you think would enjoy and appreciate our work, please share Forecast and Foreshadow with them. And now, for some final words, here is a reading from Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today. Mm-hmm.